Thank you for joining us at uh, Beer Fish Fanatics. And this episode is actually brought to you by Whisker Seeker Tackle. So make sure you guys go to whiskerseeker.com for all your catfishing gear. Enjoy the episode, guys. This episode is brought to you by Kelowna Brewing Company. If you live in Eastern Iowa, make sure to swing by Kelowna Brewing Company's tap room. Amazing food and amazing craft beer. If you live in Central Iowa or in the Midwest, swing by your local supermarket and see if they carry the Kelowna Brewing Company line of beer. And also swing by your local restaurants, local bars, see if they have Kelowna Brewing Companies on tap. If not, make sure you guys request it. You, I kid you not, you won't regret that. Other than that, enjoy this episode, guys. Um, are you going to be here actually for the, uh, the Midwest convention, Mark up here? Yes. Uh, awesome. awesome. I will be, um, I'll be up there, uh, starting Sunday night, that whole thing. So cool. That's, uh, you know, it only comes to our neck of the woods once every 10 years. It's kind of on oh, wow. a floating schedule. So uh, when we host it, it's kind of all hands on deck, so to speak. So. Perfect. Well, we will be there. <laughs> we'll be there. I think That's on, possible. on, on tuesday i believe i think i think we were talking to jeff about that so we're going to record an episode so we'll get a chance to meet you in person that's uh, i'm pretty excited about that sure awesome all right all right everybody welcome to another episode of beer fish fanatics this is grandy with my pop fishing we have kit with the fishing kit youtube channel and today uh we actually have the iowa dnr back on to re-educate us a little bit uh we got mr mark Fleming here joining us how you doing today mark very good glad to be here guys yeah good to have you back and quick shout out to our sponsor colonial brewing company i'm drinking the uh, lubricator it's a uh, double bock lager um be drinking this one it is 7.5% alcohol, so it's going to be a little strong. It's okay. I'm thirsty. What you got, Kit? I got the Coconut Abbey. It's a Belgian-style ale, and it is a doozy, 9.2% ABV. Yeah, <laughs> I remember I had that one. It's it's tasty. Don't get me wrong, but it's uh, it, it's got a little kick to it. I'm not going to lie, man. So uh, cheers. Cheers, guys, gentlemen. Cheers, cheers. What, what's your drink for today, Mark? I know you're not really the alcohol drinker, but. Oh, I am. Just not at the moment. Oh, no. not oh. <laughs> This I is. Pepper. That's, that's what I'm having. So welcome to my world tonight. I probably will be able to sleep when I go to bed, but whatever. <laughs> there we go. Well, well, we'll see you hopefully in a, a couple of weeks and maybe we can grab a, a, a beverage or two and uh, we'll. Absolutely. We sounds good on that so um but like i said we, we we definitely love having the iowa dnr uh come up here and, and really join us on the podcast i think a lot of our crazy thing is a lot of our listeners love it but the, a lot of our listeners who are actually out of state of iowa um places like in hawaii california um tennessee they i've actually gotten response from them they like they actually love hearing how our system works here. It's obviously it's different from them. So it really, you know, to them, it's like super educational. It's kind of cool. Uh, so like I said, I, I love having, having you guys on because obviously you guys teach me a lot more in regards to how fish is, you know, 
fisheries are handled and just how the, the Department of Natural Resources pretty much works. So um, so in case uh, we have lots of new listeners, if you don't mind, Mark, can you kind of just reintroduce yourself, what you do for the Iowa DNR and everything like that? Sure. Uh, my name is Mark Flaming. I'm a fish management biologist for the Iowa DNR. I am uh, so, so the fish management biologist. You know, we, we deal with the management of public lakes uh, and streams. In, in the case of, of the district I work in, we have eight counties that we work in across South Central and Southeast Iowa. Um, you know, we're the guys that set regulations if they need to be set. We're the guys that decide if fish need to be stock or if there's a fish kill it's just a host of things that we do uh, that we get involved in and and we always have some really cool research projects going on as well too so uh, i've been here for uh, uh going on 27 years uh so this is uh kind of been my home for a long time now but i grew up in northwest iowa i've been a, an iowa resident most of my life except uh, for a short stint as a biologist in texas and some a uh, few years of college in Missouri and South Dakota. So I like Iowa, and uh, so I'm here for a reason. I want to know, because obviously last time we had you on, Mark, and it was summer. I think Kit had his AC out, and he was sweaty and gross and everything. That's right. <laughs> um, but, but right now, so just so everybody knows, obviously, you know, Central Iowa, we got ice. We got we got pretty darn good ice and everything. Uh, Mark, Mark uh, handles the, the I, I would say, was it the Rathbun area, kind of a little bit southern? Is that, would you consider that southern Iowa? Yeah, it's definitely southern Iowa. I mean, you okay. can spin it Missouri if you really want to from where we're at. So uh, it's, uh, it's a, you know, it, it's kind of the banana belt of the state. So we only have 13 inches of ice right now on Rathbun. <laughs> so so but, but I was open water fishing up until after Christmas, so. Yeah. I got that. There you go. No, it's, 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 how often does Rathman get ice? Like the whole lake, like how often does that happen? Uh, almost every year, you know, there's, there's fishable ice pretty much every year. Um, typically we don't get good, uh, get a good onset of ice until after Christmas. Uh, rarely in my 27 years, we've had early ice. Uh, but, um, you know, literally, <clears throat> Literally, I had the boat in the water all through November and into December and, and uh, was out trying to ch chase hybrid striped bass through that time period. And, and honestly, the, the weather conditions were just stellar through November and into December this year. We had lots of anglers out there much later than we typically would. That's good. Right, right. I was actually kayaking um, the day of Christmas because I was uh, kind of under the weather and I was kind of quarantining away from everybody i was like you know what i might as well go hit the lake it's open and it wasn't ter it was pretty mild on christmas if i remember right well uh, i think christmas day might have been a little bit cool i don't know but it's kind of a blur to me because i hit another deer on my way up to northwest iowa to visit family christmas morning so oh boy. so that's kind of that's kind of uh where I, where my head was at that day but i i do know that I'm pretty sure Christmas Eve wasn't too bad, but I don't know. It's, it's a few weeks. <laughs> so, oh. so just so our listener knows, we we call it hybrid striped bass. We do not call it wipers. I remember from our last episode, Mark was like, "Don't don't don't be calling that that shit." <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. You can call them wipers if you really want to, but but uh, again, you know that sounds like something that comes off the, the roll in your in your bathroom. So. If you, <laughs> 
Oh, you call them what you want, but I think they're too cool to be wipers. They're hybrid straight bass. So. They're, that's funny. Me, me and my buddy, when we we're out uh, last weekend targeting wipers, we we're catching some crappies. Well, okay, we got to catch a few craps before we start wiping. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's awesome. I'm going to have to use that one. I totally, I'm going to save that one. That was pull it out someday and they're gonna think i'm a genius <laughs> that's freaking that's a good one yeah, i like that one uh actually i, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit because um i i have not had luck this year yet through the ice catching uh hybrid shred bass and i'm still targeting them because i actually i finally caught a cat luck you know surprisingly i actually caught a catfish through the ice that was one of my other goals i caught a catfish through the ice and of all places it was down in your neck of the woods uh, last weekend, but I still haven't caught a, uh, a hybrid striped bass. Is there, I guess you can, I mean, I just wonder, is there a, a, a specific technique or I guess a way to kind of target them anyways, do, would you recommend or suggest, or how does, how do they travel or work or how do you catch them? That, that's a good question because, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time chasing them through open water, but personally I don't do it through the ice. Um, I, I actually specifically asked that question of a couple of folks that I was talking to last week. And, and uh, one gentleman said that, that he and his wife were out there and they were catching him just on a, uh, a teardrop and a wax uh, and four pound test. And they were, obviously they had the battle royales. They were trying to, to reel in those fish. Um, and, and a few folks that I talked to uh, are using um, jigging Rapalas. Um you know, and, and actually that's kind of a technique I've seen some folks use in the summertime as well. I haven't tried that yet, although I probably need to add that to my arsenal one of these days, but, but, uh, that would, that, that's another one that I've heard of. Um, and then, um, I saw, um, well, a friend of a friend told me of another guy who's using small cast masters and vertically jigging those but i think he's primarily trying to catch big crappies that way but he's catching some big hybrids as well so um you know i think i don't think that anyone has i don't know anyone personally who spends a lot of time targeting them through the ice but uh you know i hear of a lot of a lot of people catching them uh just incidentally um as they're trying for these big big slab crappies that we're seeing this year hmm. i um I mean, I had I had some moderate success last week. I think I caught, I want to say like five, and maybe lost three more. I mean, because you know, you know when you hook hook up with a hybrid striped bass. But what was working for me, I was using uh, like a spoon, and I was using the the minnow head. Um, we did catch a, a few crappies here and there, but I did hook up with the with a few hybrids. So maybe I sort of know what I'm doing. Well, I tell you what I was doing today is I was fishing a, ca a small cast master um, with uh, a, a gulp, a gulp, you know, minnow thinking I was going to catch some hybrids and I couldn't catch anything on that one. Uh, and I was using a, a, a shucks, uh, oh shoot, what are they called? Shucks jigging minnow or whatever. I don't know if you even wear those, but uh, with just wax worm, and like I said, all I could catch for, for bluegills. I was totally embarrassed. I'm like crappie heaven right now, and I'm catching bluegills on Rathbun. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. trying two spots though, so that's my that's my uh, uh, excuse today. Mm. 
Yeah, I was using the spoon I was using was pretty big. I think an eighth ounce and not a lot of people go that big through the ice rattle spoon. I was just being obnoxious, just ripping that thing. And then once I started seeing movement on the sonar, I was like, okay, I'll slow it down. But there's also a lot of times where I do that and I don't catch anything. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I need to pull the live scope out of my boat and start using that in the winter. Maybe that'll increase my success. I don't know. Well, Kit has live. I mean, I actually uh, this year I I got the the regular panoptics. Kit has the live scope. I I think it helps. I mean, it doesn't hurt. I mean, you got it. You might as well pull it off the boat. <laughs> uh, it's just buried under there. I keep having people telling me that. I'm like, I don't want to stand on my head and uninstall that thing again. But we'll we'll. I'm giving it serious thought. So I'll have to come up with a system maybe for next year. <laughs> That's funny. Um, you, you're mentioning about you're in crappie heaven. So, all right. I've seen a lot of social media posts of um, norm, enormous crappies that are being caught down in your neck of the woods. Uh, I see a lot of people posting, you know, they're, they're excited. They want to show their, how much they're, they're catching limit, whatever the case may be. And then you hear all these people saying, all right, it's over harvest. I saw a post earlier today, like, okay, Raffin's over harvest. Okay. Let, let, let's clear the air. What? Okay. I, I, I have an idea, you know, your guys's, you know, process in regards to Iowa DNR, but can you explain to the people, because there's a lot of people are like, what it's over harvest or it's, it's blah, blah, blah. What is it in regards to the crappies down in, you know, Lake Rathen and everything is, is it over harvest is it under harvest? I mean, is it just a fluff? Is it just social media just going berserk? Well, you know, the thing about Rathen is it, it's pretty, it's, it's aging. So, you know, it's over 50 years old now. Um, and so the lake has definitely changed from, you know, when it was first impounded there in the early 1970s. Um, that was certainly the, the time of boom, you know, boom, the boom period for, for Rathen in terms of crappie production. We had all these hundreds of little coves that were perfect uh, spawning habitat. Um, but, you know, with, with the years of, of fluctuating water levels, with the years of wind and erosion, a lot of those coves are gone. And so the, the shore is a lot less what we, what we call dendritic. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more, it's a lot straighter now than it used to be. There's a lot fewer bays than there used to be. But that being said, we still have good spawning habitat out there. And we've done a lot um, in the last decade uh, cooperatively with the Corps of Engineers to try to protect what habitat is still out there in terms of, of real prime crappie spawning habitat. We have another project up slated to, to do even more of that work. So we recognize the importance of good crappie spawning habitat. We recognize the importance of protecting that. So we're working on that. Um, but, um, you know, back in the, the 70s and early 80s, um, the crappie truly really was outstanding. We had one year um, uh, that our annual crappie harvest that year was almost 500,000 fish. Half a million crappies went home that year. Wow. Um, you know, we, we have these angler surveys. If, you, if you're an angler and you've ever been to a lake and, and someone comes up to you in a DNR uniform, usually they're a young, young uh, a man or a young woman, and they say, hey, I need to ask you a few questions about your fishing trip. Don't be annoyed with those people. They're doing a very important job. You know, they're out there trying to gauge what is being captured, how commonly are things being captured, uh, you know, what's what's everybody's catch rate, what are we after, 
Um, those are important questions that we need to answer. Uh, from those surveys, we can estimate total harvest of, of crops. To give you a, a little bit of idea where we're at today, uh, I'm working up a report from last year's creel survey, and we harvested between 50 and 60,000 crappies on raft last year. So literally a tenth of our maximum harvest uh, ever. So uh, we're not over harvesting those fish. Sure, the lake probably doesn't produce the same numbers of fish that it once did. But that being said, we're producing plenty of crappies out there to the point where some years we get such a big that they grow really slowly. It takes about five years for a crappie to reach nine inches on Lake Rath. That's actually fairly fast growth. So uh, we have this, this five-year period where this, this fish is growing and, and some of them are dying every year from natural causes. Some of them are being harvested. Um, but if we get a, a huge year class, those growth rates actually drop. And so all of a sudden, after five years, maybe we only have a seven and a half inch crop. Uh, so, so what we're really looking for are consistent year classes uh, where we get good growth and then we, we get these fish growing up. You know, some of these slab fish that they're pulling out, I saw a guy with four fish that were over 14 inches the other day, and that's not unusual for what we're seeing at all this year. You know, that fish might be a dozen years old. It might be seven years old too. It, it's just going to vary. Um, but that being said, you know, it, it does take a fair amount of time for those fish to attain that large size. And I might just give a, another quick plug for, um, for our creel clerks, uh, be honest with those folks. They're not out there trying to get your, your, all your secrets in terms of, of what are you catching? They're not trying to be in your way. They're not trying to ruin your day. All they're trying to do is collect valid information because that kind of information is absolutely necessary for us. For instance, right now, you know, we don't have a length limit on walleyes at craft. There's some really good reasons why we don't. But that being said, it's something that I'm always evaluating. You know, we wanna have the right regulations at the right time. And we can't make those kinds of decisions if we have walleye anglers not being truthful. You know what I'm mm, saying? I very mean, true. If you've got a uh, if you've got a limit of walleyes in your life well and you tell a creel clerk, hey, I'm cutting, what do you think that does to my estimate of harvest? All of a sudden my estimate of harvest is like, oh yeah, we hardly are catching anything. When in fact we're we're catching, you know, 97% more fish than I think we are. So just you know, the DNR is not out there to to cash in on on all your secrets. We just need the real information. So that's my plug for our grill clerk positions. And, and uh, you know, they're, they're usually, some, you know, there's some very good young folks out there doing those jobs for us. And I'll be honest with, with you, it's, it's kind of a, uh, kind of a, a thankless job some days. So uh, that being said, uh, be, be nice. <laughs> no, very, very true. Uh, they actually came over to me when I was up uh, at a lake up north. Uh, I mean, we can name it. It was Clear Lake, and I think I was a couple beverages in. I was nice to them, <laughs> but but my buddies are just like, "What'd you do, Grandy?" I'm like, "Man, I didn't do shit. I was just fishing, and I, you know, they just came to ask, you know, what we caught, and, and you know, how many, and that was it." He goes, "All right, whatever, man," because they were like thinking I was a troublemaker. I was like, I wasn't doing anything. I was just helping them out, just telling them exactly what we caught. But like you said, it's uh, just one of those things. Be truthful with them. Uh, it helps in regards to the numbers and everything. So that's, that's pretty cool. 
yeah so so anyway the long and short of it is wrath and crappies are not being over harvested we can sustain a much higher harvest rate than what we're currently seeing um you know angler trends on rathbun you know i track that how many anglers are visiting the lake every year in the last 20 years there's been a bit of a decline um uh, but not so much that it's you know very marked it's, it's not a huge difference it's not a, it's not a huge decline and and actually those people that are visiting tend to fish take a fish on fish longer for each trip so back in 1985 your average angling trip might have been 2.8 hours and now maybe the average angling trip is 3.8 you know so what I'm saying is that, you know, we are seeing a, a lot of anglers still visiting the lake. It's, it's one of the primary recreational opportunities out there on, on, on not just Rathbun, but all these lakes around. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, Rathbun is really producing right now in terms of crappies. And, and, you know, we could talk about it later, but I've got some really good things to say about Rathbun walleyes, which is something I haven't been able to tout for a number of years. So, uh, just remember to hit that too. Will do. <laughs> just out of curiosity, how long does the crappie can live up to? How many years? I'm just, I don't know. You know, fish have kind of a plastic life cycle. They can, it can vary depending on where they're at. You know, for instance, um, you know, you go to, you go to uh, Northern Manitoba and you're walleye fishing, you know, a 20 inch walleye might be 20 years old. You just don't know. Whereas a 20 inch walleye on Lake Rathbun is going to be probably about five or six. Uh, so the thing is, how long do they live? Um, usually our fish on Rathbun don't live as long as some of the, for instance, like the Iowa Great Lakes. Uh, they'll see older fish up there that, than what we tend to see. Um, but that's not to say we can't see, see those those uh, uh, those older fish. But the thing is that we have much faster growth rates, and and so as a result, you know, we we don't see tend to see these really really old fish. A fish will generally grow throughout its entire life cycle, its entire lifetime. But that being said, they obviously slow down the older we get. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, is there a way for like me if I bring home a crappie or? Uh walleye or whatever is there a way for me to check like how do like man this is this walleye is like 15 years old <laughs> you can so uh, honestly you ever you ever cut a tree cut a yeah. tree down and look Just, at look at the ring yes that tree yeah. is your goal all right yeah. All right. Sorry about that, guys. But uh, uh, we we're just getting to the good stuff because uh, Fishing Kit was just asking, is there a way that we can tell how old the fish is once we catch them? Yeah. And, and I was I was talking about how, you know, you cut down a tree and you 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 look at the growth rings and you can tell, well, that that tree is 10 years old or 110 years old or whatever the case may be. And and you can do something similar to that with fish. Um there's different structures, different parts of the fish we can use to aid fish. On fish like a crappie, I actually just pull scales off the side of the fish. It doesn't hurt the fish at all. And, and we can look at those scales. And there's some different ways that we do that. But, and it's actually a bit of an art. You can't just normally look at it and say, oh, yeah, that fish is five years old. You know, you <laughs> got to have some practice at it. But, uh, um, you know, try it sometime. And, and uh, 
you know, if you've got a magnifying glass, you catch a big crappie, you, you look, pull those scales off, you put a light underneath it. You can, you can usually tell, you know, you can, you'll, you'll get an idea that there's some difference in the spacing, these little rings. And so that's one way we can tell. But alternatively, there's some other things we can do. Obviously, you can't do that for a catfish. A catfish, you know, those the pectoral spines, their arms, right? You know, those serrated spines. You can pull those off. You can cut those off and, and actually section those, polish it, look at it under a microscope. And literally, you'll see the same thing. You'll see these horseshoe look shape patterns, but you can count rings on that. So that's, that's really cool. That's, that's even easier to read a lot of times than a scale. Um, then uh, there's a couple other options. We use uh, spines uh, off like dorsal fin on walleye or largemouth bass a lot of times. Uh, same deal, you polish it, look, it under, look at it under a microscope. And then finally, um, well, Northern Pike are an entirely different deal. I did some of that when I was in graduate school and, and there's, they're really hard to age in a lot of cases, but uh, there's some bones that you can actually look at. Um, on, uh, on a lot of fish, you, you resort to taking a bone out called an otolith. Believe it or not, fish have ears and uh, you have some otoliths in your head, fish have otoliths in their head as part of their ear, and you look at those under a microscope and you can, you can age fish that way too. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it. You know, the problem is you may not be able to necessarily figure it out unless you've had some, had some education on it, but heck, give it a try. Pull some scales off the fish sometime, look at it under a magnifying glass, see what you come up with. Um, it's it's kind of cool. That is pretty cool. I, I, we might, have, I might, have, we might have to do a video kit one day. We would just catch something like that. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, I might have to try it. Just, just check it out. Okay, I figured out how old this fish is. <laughs> so, so um, it, it isn't always super easy. Um, one of our biologists, uh, friend of mine up on the Mississippi River, is aging a bunch of bigmouth buffalo, and he's also aging shovelnose sturgeon. And these fish might be seventy-five. 80 years old in some cases wow and they're incredibly hard to age i'm glad it's him doing it not me because my eyes don't work that well anymore but uh it's it's pretty cool stuff to think that there's actually fish swimming around in iowa that are as old as you know my father would have been or even older than my father so yeah it's, it's kind of crazy dang that's pretty dang cool uh if yeah I, and now next time whenever i bring a fish home i'm gonna look at it like try to figure out like how old is this dang fish <laughs> um, do you do it yourself like do you ever take a fish i'm like oh okay uh, this fish is like 10 years old you know, you know what drum are sheephead oh yeah mm -hmm. yeah they have the biggest otoliths there are uh and so actually white bass and hybrid striped bass have really big otoliths as well and i can even read those without magnification sometimes so if you clean a bunch of white bass break the skull open and you'll get these kind of disc shaped bones and you look at them in your hand and shine a light on it. I just about guarantee you'll be able to at least get a good idea as to how old that fish is. Just looking at it. Hmm. We got to try it. We got to try it now. Yeah. We got to do it now. No, seriously. I, 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 we'll, we'll make it happen. We'll, we got to figure yeah, it yeah. out. <laughs> if you um, like it and I, and we catch white bass, I'll show you how to crack the skull and look if look for the old ones. All right, we're gonna have to make it happen. <laughs> no, I, I'm curious because a lot of people, um, I mean, whether it's 
you know, they post on social media or whatever the case may be. They're just like, do you know how old that fish is? You got to let it go and all that stuff. So I'm just like, but how do you even know how old the fish is? Like you're saying, because it's specific species, they, they get yeah, big So highly variable. Uh, you know, years ago, I did a study on channel catfish and we had catfish from uh, Lake Sejima over in Southeast Iowa. And you know, uh, a 23 inch channel catfish might be seven or eight years old. Whereas I go to another lake, I'd have uh, uh, a 13 inch catfish that was 13 years old. Uh, mm. It's just that much difference in growth, depending on where you're at and what the habitat's like. So yeah, it's really hard to make, make, you know, kind of judgment calls as well. How big, how old is that fish? I get that question all the time. And the question is somewhere between one and 47. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> what's, um, what's a common question do you get from the general public? Uh, as far as like, when it comes to, I don't know, like regulations and stuff like what I'm pretty sure people are asking like, you know, why don't we have this regulation or why yeah, don't we have that? Know. Yeah, walleye on Lake Rathlin is a perfect example. We get a lot of folks saying, you know, I, I, I read social media. I, I just like to see what's being said out there. And there's a lot of folks who propose that we have a slot length limit on Lake Rathlin. Well, why should we have a slot length limit on walleyes on Lake Rathlin? Well, because it works at Spirit Lake or it works at Clear Lake or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and that's exactly why we don't have regulations on the walleye population at Lake Grafton right now. Again, or keep in mind, it's something I'm always evaluating, uh, just like it would be for any species. You know, if we feel like we have a harvest issue or we're harvesting too many fish or, or we're not maybe even not harvesting enough, we're going to look at a regulation. And if we look at existing regulations to find out if they're doing the right thing, we're looking if there is not a regulation should there be. You know, there's, there's all this stuff that we're looking at constantly. And what you can't do is try to say, well, it works at this lake, so it ought to work here, because that's not how things work. Those are entirely different systems. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, in, in those lakes up there, they have what's, we went through this, con this conversation last time where we talked about recruitment, growth, and mortality. Recruitment is the number of fish that come into a population on an annual basis on an annual basis mortality is how many die and then this growth factor comes in because among other things that has to do with how quickly will those fish start reproducing and adding to the population themselves okay so these three things are what determine what the size of any any animal population whether you're talking about field mice human beings or fish so we've got we, we've got uh um this idea that there ought to be a slot length limit on, on walleyes and lake grass because it works somewhere else. That's, that's not how we manage fisheries. We have to collect all that data. We have to find out how many fish are coming into the population on an annual basis. At uh, East Lake Okoboji, their recruitment is very, very good. At Lake Rathbun, our recruitment is pretty low. We don't have as many fish survive in any given year. So, right there, a slot length limit is the wrong choice because a slot length limit, think about what you're doing. You're harvesting small fish, you're protecting the medium-sized fish, then you can harvest some of the larger ones, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to increase harvest on the small end on Lake Rathbun because we already have a limited number of fish coming through there in the first place. If we want to do anything on Lake Rathbun, 
it would probably try, it would be to probably try to protect uh, the smaller ones and then harvest the large. So, you know, that, that would be the most common regulation that we would probably consider for walleyes and lake breath. Uh, again, it's something that I'm constantly doing. It's just up to this point, we haven't set a regulation like that because it hasn't been the right call yet. When it is the right call, you'll see us make a choice like that. Um, and and that, that, that goes for more than just wrath. So that's, I guess, probably the most common thing I get in terms of wrath then is, you know, why isn't there a slot lengthening? Well, because it's not the right thing to do. And that's kind of, you know, you go, to, you go to Wisconsin and you look at their regulation book. It's about that thick, weighs about eight pounds. No, I'm just kidding. But it's, 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 very, it's very much a large detailed document that is very hard to, for, I, I personally, this is just me speaking, I personally think that's hard for the angler to keep track of. If you don't have a, if you're not going to move the needle with the regulation, my personal philosophy is you shouldn't set the regulation. In other words, if you aren't going to make things better, why would you set a rule? And I think that as, as an agency, the Iowa DNR does a very effective job in that regard. We set regulations when we can show there's a need. We don't set regulations if there's not a need. And I think that's kind of the hallmark of a, of a good agency that's looking to take care of the resource but also looking to take care of the anglers and trying to treat everyone and the, and the resource right. And, and so, um, you know, that's, that's, I guess, kind of my soapbox issue is, you know, let's, let's, we regulate when we need to, but not, not unless there's a reason. Yeah. No, I think um, you hit it on, on point right there. Like every lake, everybody waters different, different things is going to, you know, it, it the way it, it happens is just going to be different. But I think also a lot of people would, ha- I mean, this is what I see. So I, I see a lot of, and I hear a lot of people like, well, they need to set, you know, limits, whatever the case may be, whether slot limits or just limits period. Right. And then when I ask them, I go, you know, a lot of people I talk to, like, why do you think that they go, well, most of the time we can't catch shit. Every time we go there, we can't catch, you know, anything. So it's, you know, from that specific angler. And then all of a sudden they get a little frustrated. Maybe they went out one time, they fished, didn't catch anything. Then next thing you know, they see these pictures of people harvesting. So they're just like, it's over harvesting. That's it. That, that, that's their only, an- their only answer is we got to set, we got to set limits. I, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but it's always the good old days. Back in the good old days, you know, this used to be, it used to be this good. I'd go out to Lake Rath and I'd catch my walleyes in 12 minutes and I'd be done. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just how we remember things. Um, but what we remember is absolute best day we ever had. And then we like make it even better because it's our long-term memory. But, but in reality, you know, it, it's, it's a lot different deal. I mean, it, tournament catch rates for largemouth bass, you know, tournament anglers catch a quarter fish per hour. You know, they catch a quarter of a largemouth bass per hour as, as they're fishing. Uh, and those are the best of the best of the best, so to speak. So, you know, we always think about how awesome things used to be, but the, the fact is that things are pretty darn good right now. So don't, don't forget. Crop, crop is unwrapped and are the, are the perfect example because things wax and wane. We get a big year class of crappies. Maybe they're growing a little bit slowly. Keep in mind, fish have to be small before they can be big. So those fish have to reach a, a specific size. And maybe we got to, crappies are a cyclic thing, you know, 
that they'll produce a big year class and then it might be three to five years before it produce another one. So those fish are moving their way up to the fishery. That's why we're catching these big giant slab crappies, uh, in particular last year and this year, because we had some year classes about seven, eight, nine, and 10 years ago that are now showing up as these really beautiful big fish. And it's interesting because, you know, when the, when the real heat of the crappie season is going, you know, things are really clicking and we're catching fish after fish after fish after fish. In a lot of cases, those big fish have already been there, spawn, and then they've moved back out to deeper water. You think about when you catch big crappies, I would hazard a guess a lot of it is in the early spring before the bite is really on per se. I mean, I don't know if you'd agree with that, but that's been kind of my experience is that the really big ones seem to come really early in the year. And then we start to get kind of the average Joes coming in after that. And, and we catch a lot, a lot, you know, wall to wall, every cast. Or, but anyway, that's just my take on it. It's not to say you can't catch a big crop the other times of the year, but I think there are times really are able to key on those big ones. For those super, like you were talking about those big year classes where there's a bunch of fish that are, you know, within a certain year class and they're slow growing. Um, would you say that it'd be better to keep a lot of these smaller fish to kind of bring bring those numbers down? I mean, you know, as anglers, as anglers uh, with 40, 50,000 trips a year, we're probably not going to drive that fishery a lot. In other words, if we all keep the small ones, we're probably not going to keep enough to really, in a, in a resource like Rath, we're probably not going to drive that fishery too much because we're talking about these immense numbers. Um, that being said, yeah, it, it is kind of, uh, you know, I shouldn't say silly, but, you know, don't think you're, don't, you ever seen that commercial where, you know, you're, you're eating potato chips and they tell you, hey, eat all you want, or we'll make more. Well, that's kind of the way crappies are on a lot of these systems, you know, you take them we'll make more and and you know don't feel bad i guess right now in terms of harvesting harvesting these fish because honestly we are like i keep saying i hate to keep beating a you know this drum but we are monitoring these these harvests uh we are looking at what's really going on and and uh if and when harvest becomes an issue we have ways of of reducing harvest through regulation but if there's not a regulation then um you know, don't feel bad about, about harvesting those fish because that's what they're, that's essentially what they're there for. And so, you know, by harvesting the small fish, do we increase the growth rates? We don't, we don't slow them down. That's for sure. Uh, you know, it, that mortality is really important. Uh, and so, you know, once these fish, uh, once those numbers start re reducing, growth rates will increase. We've seen that on some lakes where we renovate the fish population. We, we go out and we have, for whatever reason, let's say it fills with common carp uh, and, uh, you know, we have to go out and we have to kill all the fish and then we restock. Uh, we've seen uh, the bluegills come along in some cases, usually not, but just a few cases. We've seen the bluegills be really slow to come around. And that is oftentimes due to the fact that when the lake started filling up again, we got this monstrous year class of bluegills that didn't grow, they're not growing fast. 
they're really, really slow growing. There's so many of them that they basically are repressing any new fish from coming into the fishery. So every bluegill out there might be seven years old and still be seven inches long. You know, they just never reach that point. Mortality starts chipping away at them. As they get older and older and older, there's fewer of them. But then their growth rates start to increase and all of a sudden, boom, they, they top eight inches, eight and a half inches and, and things really kind of click on like switch, switching on a light bulb. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we've seen that at different lakes. Red Haw over by uh, Sheridan, Iowa was a perfect example. We renovated it in 2002 and it was 10 years before we got an eight inch bluegill, but things really improved. Well, improved, you know, they're very quick. We had a very low amount of rain this year so that a lot of water levels were low uh was rafting low too and and if it was how did it affect or it have you seen it it wasn't really low all year we we got rains um it was last year was a funny year uh we were dry everywhere uh except really the raft watershed we didn't get an excessive amount of water but rafting was actually high through much of the summer and into the fall, about about a foot and a half high through that entire time period. So while a lot of other lakes and certainly our, our streams were really struggling for water, that wasn't the case at Rathbun. Um, what was it I measured? I think in July, I measured something like 18 inches of rain in my rain gauge in Albia here. I mean, it just we got these storm after storm after storm and I was really tired of it to be honest I was tired of mowing and all that stuff but <laughs> oh well so so yeah Rathlin never did really get low last year we didn't have these massive floods which is good and that's really actually kind of key to our walleye recovery in the last few years is we've had some stability in our our water in our water levels we haven't had these massive releases uh, we've had some fry. So we stock about 38 million fry every spring, spring on Lake Rathman. Wow. So these are walleyes that are just, you know, a couple of days old. We take them out to the lake and we stock them. Those are the, those are the fish that really make or break big year classes. It doesn't matter if it's Lake Rathman, if it's West Lake Okapoji, if it's Clear Lake, if it's Storm Lake those fry stockings go in each and every one of these lakes in the spring. And if they survive uh, well, that is, that's a year class that's gonna drive that fishery for the next seven, eight, 10 years. If they don't survive, which is more common than not, uh, they're not gonna do very well, then, then obviously they, they don't produce a big year class. And, and yet we grow these beautiful, you know, eight to 10 inch walleyes that we release in the fall. Those are called our advanced fingerlings. And so what that does, what they do is they take the, the deep valleys out of the year class. So we get a big fry year class and then boom, we wouldn't get anything for next one, two, maybe even three years. Well, by stocking those, those, um, those advanced fingerlings, instead of bottoming out because the fry didn't survive, we kind of give us something, all right? So, they're kind of the, the bonus. They help to balance out the fishery and they're very, very important. So that's, they're kind of a critical part of, of driving these walleye populations. Um, Rathbun, we've been, we've been very fortunate because we've had some fry survival. Our advanced fingerlings are surviving very well. And with these drier years, we're having less floodwater discharge, which means 
we aren't dumping as many of our walleyes into the Sheridan River and sending them down to Missouri. So we've got three things basically working for us. And all of a sudden in 2021, we had some of the best walleye angling we've had in at least a decade, if not longer. Uh, the heck I was going out and I was catching limits of walleyes in a relatively short period. If I'm catching limits of walleyes, that's a big deal. And that's, that's uh, uh, you know, where we were at and very, very happy with that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I haven't been able to talk about for a number of years, and that is the success of, of these walleye in Lake Grafton. So I, I like that. It's great. And it's got people excited. Uh, we've got a really cool study going on right now with Iowa State uh, where we're looking at walleye movements around the lake. Um, this is kind of a multi-pronged study. One of them, one part of it is we're trying to identify how many fish are leaving the lake with the floodwater discharge. Uh, and um, you may have seen the sign that you put your boat in the water. There's a $200 reward if you catch one of these walleyes with a yellow tag in its back. Uh, and, and we get a number of those turned in every year, which is really good deal because well it's a good deal for you because you get the 200 dollars. <laughs> we get the tag back and we can re-implant those fish but we've got all these receivers around the lake and we're tracking these fish we're finding out where they're going we're finding out how how well they survive uh because you know fish die of natural causes too so how many of them are dying naturally uh there's even a really cool kind of tag that we're using now this is really awesome um where we're putting them in some of our advanced fingerlings. And look, you know, there, there's a component of people out there who say that our walleye population is crashing because the, the wipers, I can call them wipers in this case, but <laughs> because the wipers are eating all the walleyes, well, that's not the case. But, you know, we have nothing to base that on. But now we're not only finding it out for sure, we'll find out for sure if that's true, um, but we're going to be able to prove it because we put these tags in these advanced fingerling walleyes. And let's say that this, this 10 inch walleye is swimming around the lake. He's all happy and he's, he's pinging. Okay. He's pinging all the time. And so our receivers are out there in the lake and they're picking it up and they're deciding, Hey, here he is, or there he is, or he's over here and Hey, he's alive and happy. But let's say that fish gets eaten by a giant hybrid striped bass. Okay. Um, he's still going to be moving around, right? Because now he's in the gut, in the belly of this big hybrid. So he's over here, he's over there, he's over here. But when they get eaten, the, the tag actually starts making a different sound. And so all of a sudden, the receiver will tell us, hey, walleye 87543 was eaten by something, probably a hybrid striped bass, we don't know, could have been a northern pike, but he was eaten and um, that's it. and so the pinging changed, and so we know that he we call them predator tags or predation tags. So we'll be able to tell you how many of these fish actually get eaten, and then ultimately pooped <laughs> out somewhere. But yeah, <laughs> pretty cool stuff. This is like science fiction, science cool, awesome stuff that that I never dreamed we'd ever have the technology to do something. Yeah, stuff. that's pretty cool. Um, it it reminds me of um. One of my buddies, uh, Robbie Weber. I don't know if you know him. He did the um, he did the tagging uh, data for Bay Creek. It was part oh, of man. his. Uh, Robert Weber. You bet. Yep, yeah, Robbie Weber. Um, I remember he was talking about they found a tag 
in the middle of a cornfield and they just deduced that some bird got a fish and then pooped it out in the middle of a cornfield. <laughs> like, man, that is crazy. It, it wasn't just one. It was uh, actually, this is kind of a, a hard story and, and I don't want to dwell on it too much because it's not my story and I don't remember all of the intricacies about it, but it had to do with muskie stocking in the Iowa Great Lakes. And they were putting transmitters, radio transmitters, which is a different kind of tag than what we're using on raft. And you follow these around with a big radio antenna. Anyway, they, these, these fish were disappearing and it was more than one. And um, I guess to kind of just uh, summarize, they started looking around for these fish and they found a great blue heron rookery uh, north of the lake. Possibly it might even have been in Minnesota. I don't recall for sure. But there was a pile of tags basically underneath these trees. The great blue herons had come in and eaten a bunch of the muskies with the transmitters. So um, it's like one of those weird stories of the strange but true. And that's exactly what it was. I mean, they, they got pooped out in Minnesota. So. <laughs> that's so crazy. All right, Mark, before, before we uh, get too far along here, um, before... Uh, when we were coming into this uh, podcast here, I was uh, so part of your job for working for the DNR and stuff is you do these survey data and stuff. And I just, I'm just curious uh, about your most recent survey. It was, um, it happened back in the fall. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. We, so we sample a lot in the fall. Um, fall is a very busy time. So uh, our fall sampling schedule looks a lot like this. We, uh, we do a lot of what's referred to as fight netting. Um, and that's the kind of net that uh, catches a lot of crappies and bluegills. So that's a, that's a big thing that we do a lot of in the fall. We also are doing a tremendous amount of electrofishing, primarily, um, well, at, on, on Lake Rathbun, we're kind of evaluating everything. Most importantly, we're evaluating our largemouth bass population, which believe it or not, is, is not too bad on Rathbun. Uh, we're evaluating our wall, our small walleye pot, small walleye population. We're evaluating our walleyes that are small. That's a better way of saying it. We're, uh, and then um, we are also evaluating things like prey abundance. We're looking at our gizzard shad numbers in the fall as well. Uh, so we're out there electrofishing at night. Um, you know, everything your mom told you not to do, putting electricity in water, and, and that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, to be out doing that. And then uh, we also are on Rathbun um, gill netting in the fall. Uh, it's a different kind of gill net than we use for our broodstock collection in the spring. This uh, has a whole bunch of different mesh sizes. It's, it's, uh, it's some big, big meshes that fish get stuck in. And then it's sometimes some really small meshes that smaller fish get stuck in. And that's really important to us for evaluating our walleye population, because really that's some of the best data we have on, on how abundant are all of our walleyes, not just the big ones, but all of them. And then also our hybrid striped bass, our white bass, and even our channel catfish. So what did we find? Um, we found that our crappie population is really quite good right now. Uh, 2020, 2020 and 2021, Rathman crappies were uh, as abundant and as high quality uh, in terms of our size as we have seen in a decade. So, awesome. Um, 
our hybrid striped bass population keeps growing. Uh, it's not growing to any massive number. It's right where we want it to be. We are seeing uh, nine plus pound fish now, uh, which is just awesome. I mean, I can't wait to catch my first 10 pound plus fish out there. Um, and yet, uh, you know, they're, they're not overabundant. Our stocking density looks to be right where we want it to be. I'm not going to increase it because, you know, we're, we're happy with the, with the overall management of that population. Our walleyes, uh, as, as I think I've mentioned, we've had the highest walleye catch rates in our fall gill nets the last two years that we've had in like 13 years. So uh, what that's telling us uh, is that we have a whole lot of small fish out there that are doing really well. They're growing, it's gonna take a while, um, but the anglers caught a tremendous number of 13 and 14 inch walleyes this past year. Uh, those fish are gonna be somewhere 15, 16, maybe even up to 17 inches in 2022. Uh, and uh, so, so things are, are really clicking for us there. And, and you know, Rathbun is, uh, I've been a biologist there a long time, as I mentioned, and, and uh, you know, it's been a while since I've been able to say, hey, everything's looking really good right now, but honestly, things are looking pretty good. And that's pretty exciting for me. After this podcast, you're going to see uh, like a billion gazillion fishermen going on a raft bin now. It's all right. Why we're here. Um, you know, uh, I, we were talking about how often does raft bin get ice. Um, it has been a while since I've drilled through, you know, as much ice as I've seen this year. There, there's been years where we've only had, you know, maybe three weeks of ice fishing. I'm going to tell you a secret. I kind of love those years. <laughs> But don't tell anybody. But uh, no, I mean, there's also been some years where we've drilled through 18 inches ice, but that was an early freeze up year, you know. So I think we're actually a little bit above normal in terms of our ice coverage this year. I think that, you know, January has probably been a below normal temperature uh, month. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, uh, so, you know, we've built a lot of really high quality ice out there and it's going to be with us for several weeks yet, obviously. Hmm. Oh, here I got I got another question. Um, so with Rathbun being a flood control reservoir, I see I see some things on Facebook where people are saying uh, these type of lakes are dangerous because they're always fluctuating. You go out there, drill yeah. a hole through the ice, and you know there's two feet between you and the water down, and if you fall down there, you're kind of screwed. Is there any you know validation to those type of comments? I've heard that story before too. I think it was, uh, you know, the, it doesn't happen on Rathbun. Let's just put it that way. There's no no physical way that the ice could hold itself up. Uh, you know, it, the lake doesn't drop that fast. The the, the ice cannot support itself uh, in in that kind of circumstance. Um, I had a buddy of mine claim something like that to me when we were going to college in South Dakota uh, on a on a small lake that was an impoundment where they dumped a bunch of water. It was like a power plant lake or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know, in a in a limited case like that, right? You're sure you might be able to find a void where the where the ice is kind of sitting. But honestly, I think it's primarily a wives' tale. But that being said, be careful on the ice. You know, I I had. 
I had my ice picks around my neck today, even though I was walking on 13 inches of ice. And I even heard stories about people driving automobiles on, on Rath last week, which I probably would not do, but I'm a pretty careful guy. Um, but, uh, you know, ice safety is definitely something that you need to be aware of. doesn't matter if you've got 30 inches of ice or, or six inches of ice. I mean, it's just, just prudent. Um, I'm an ice diver. Uh, you know, I actually go scuba diving under the ice, and yet uh, I I know enough to be safe around it when I'm walking on top of it. So. Right, because you never know. You never know. You never know what you're going to, you never know. Well, I mean, for instance, was it two weeks ago up at Okaboji? Um, a friend of mine from high school was actually involved in a rescue up there because I think, I don't remember if it was an ATV or a truck or both an ATV and a truck. I can't recall, but uh, uh, it, uh, it went through. So yeah, it happens. And it happens in locations where you wouldn't think it would get a pressure ridge or something. Oop. Yeah, Okaboji up there, they're probably got a foot and a half of ice or something like that. Well, this time of year, I've been up there scuba diving and we've pulled 36 inches of ice out. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. I do remember seeing that. Uh, actually, I saw a video of um, it wasn't the guys actually doing the rescue, but somebody was recording um, some guys helping out the, the guys that fell through in the ATV. Yeah. yeah I, uh, friend of mine uh, posted it on Facebook he was right there and, and was helping out so uh, that was pretty cool that that he was involved in that hey I'm curious oh. Mark um how often do you guys actually uh the Iowa DNR how often do you guys really pay attention to social media and Facebook because it could get it could be accessible <laughs> and people could just post whatever so I'm just wondering like a lot of people oh. they could say negative positive yeah. so, positive things whatever the case may be so how, how often do you guys really pay attention and and do you guys take that into consideration when it, it, when it, it comes to regulations and shit like that you know on my own time uh i do use social media i mean i have a daughter who's 21 so i mean she's she's uh fully uh educated me on social media except she's never got me to use instagram or twitter or whatever that is. But, but that being said you know i i do pay attention to that kind of stuff just out of mainly out of curiosity but you know you can imagine as a as a public figure as a public employee in a resource management role uh you are kind of a target from time to time as part of the job I mean, it isn't fun. It's not my favorite, not my favorite part of the job. I've been called some very interesting things. Um, but I like to think that occasionally I'm also called the smart guy or something resembling, <laughs> you know, at least a good guy, right? Uh, he tries hard. But um, the thing is that, um, you know, there public interaction, public input, that's all part of resource management. We want to know what people respect, what people want, what people demand. Um, it's not saying that everything is doable. It's not saying that everything is, is uh, um, going to happen the way that you necessarily want it. Uh, not everything goes the way we want from time to time too. So uh, but but uh, you know one of the one of the tenets of the, the North American wildlife conservation model, uh, basically that's what all fish and wildlife um, 
uh, um, agencies were basically looking at, you know, it's a set of basically seven rules of, of how, how will wildlife be managed in North America? And one of them is public input. And, you know, we don't work in a vacuum. We have to work, uh, we have to, uh, uh, I guess, basically uh, take in public consideration on, on all issues. That doesn't mean that you don't have opposing views. Uh, it doesn't mean that, like I said, everything can be provided for, but uh, it is part of the overall management goal is to include uh, public in the overall uh, planning, so planning stages. So uh, social media is one way of getting to that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's how I first reached out to you because um, I saw, I think you replied to some posts or something, but there was just something about your post like, okay, this guy knows a little bit more than your average Joe. And then I, that's when I reached out to you like, hey, you seem to know a little bit more about some stuff. I feel, you know, I was kind of trying to figure you out. And then it turns out, okay, you're managing the, uh, a fishery and stuff. I'm like, okay, this makes sense. I are so smart. Yeah, no, I actually, uh, I, I guess, you know, it, that's our job as, as uh, in our case, as fisheries professionals is to, to understand the biology, but to, we also have to pay attention to the human aspect of everything. And, and uh, so it's a balancing act, but I like to think we do a pretty good job of it. Let's talk about fishing before we, we, we end the conversation and the podcast. So we, we got to talk a little bit about fishing. Mark, what is your goal this year for ice fishing? Like I had, this is the thing. So we had our goals, fishing kit myself. Um, I got, I had goals set up. I'm, I'm almost there. I'm almost there to all my goals. I, I, I still have to catch a white, uh, hybrid striped bass <laughs> through, the, through the ice. That's the only other goal. Cause, um, I haven't caught one in almost two years now through the ice. So that, that was my other goal. But what is your goal, Mark, to, I know you're not the biggest ice fisherman, but what is your goal to, well, to ice fishing? So uh, I think I was mentioning to you before that there's this little lake called Gordon Reservoir. Uh, and uh, it was a lake that was a non-producer for at least 30 years. Uh, my entire career, even when I was a, a, a summer uh, help for the Iowa DNR, I remember driving by this lake and saying, good God, what's wrong with that lake? Because it always looked like chocolate milk. Uh, and the problem was it was full of common carp, it was full of yellow bass, it was full of gizzard shad, it had everything wrong with it that could possibly be wrong, and in 2016, we uh, uh, renovated it, and honestly, it's been some of the best bluegill, and it's turning out to be some of the best crappie fishing uh, in our little neck of the woods. Uh, that being said, um, I do really well in the spring, but I can't catch fish to the ice there, so... The one thing in terms of my goal for ice fishing yet this year is to go catch 10 inch bluegill out of that lake yet this winter. So uh, I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm not saying I'm going to get it done, but uh, that that's the one thing I'm going to attempt maybe yet this weekend or uh, possibly some evening after the next game. So we'll give it a shot. Uh, the other thing is I would like to catch maybe, you know, uh, I would like to catch a, a, a number of, slab size crappies out of wrath and you know i i would like to catch more than more than i can count on one hand uh even though uh you know it's it's uh it's pretty good pretty good goal if you can catch you know five 12 inch crappies out of any lake in a given day that's pretty awesome so uh, that's uh, that's i guess where i'm at is i would like to like to catch 
six. <laughs> there <laughs> we go. Funny. That's it. Oh, yeah, and I would like to catch a hybrid striped bass, too. But uh, uh, I'm not necessarily holding my breath on that. I'm I'm waiting for the, you know, I'll, I'll be I'll be out there as soon as the, the boat ramps are thawed out and I can get the boat in the water, too. We'll have to go down there. Okay, we, we'll have to go down there once uh, open water season opens up, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I want to yeah, take my kayak out there, catch some, catch some hybrids on the kayak or hot You can do it. There's uh there's some points on a good day if you can stay out of the wind. There's some there's some good points that I think you could stay out of the wind and, and catch some fish. So. Um I this is just kind of popping on my head. I just uh I, I was just thinking Mark, but okay, so yellow bass. Uh I have a lot of family members and I just have friends that really love yellow bass. I love yellow bass. We love catching yellow bass. Why are they so bad to specific waters? Well, you know, the yellow bass question is a very good one because they they are kind of a, a strange deal. Um, I'll give you a, a, an example. Uh, Lower Albia Reservoir here. It's a it's a um, thirty five acre lake. Very very nice lake. Uh, just north of Albia generally has some very good bluegill fishing in particular. Uh, but um, there are yellow bass in there that are legit, you know, 12 inch fish almost. Uh, and I've caught them, uh, but they never become very abundant. Uh, and some of the lakes that I manage, I've got yellow bass records going back to the 60s. And there's some interesting stories about how they got there. It probably had to do with uh, we used to have a crew that worked for the Iowa Conservation Commission that did fish rescues on the Mississippi River. If the backwater was starting to lose all its oxygen, they would go in and haul fish out and they transfer them around the lake and or around the state, I'm sorry. And, and uh, anyway, that, that stopped many, many, many years ago, but yellow bass have been moved around since then. Um, so the question is, why do some lakes, do they go crazy and other lakes, you know, they they produce very quality fisheries. And honestly, we don't really have an answer to that yet. It probably has a number of, of reasons, and uh, and a lot of it probably goes back to having that one year class that is just so massive and dominant that um, all of a sudden they they smother other species. Uh, you know, case in point, Lake Cornelia up in kind of north central Iowa has 385 pounds per acre of yellow bass in it right now 385 pounds per acre the catch rates on fall night electric fishing are something like 1200 fish per hour uh so you got guys up on the front of the boat and they're dipping fish and they're picking up 1200 of them in an hour i mean that's that's unheard of. and what happens is they account for something like 87% of all the biomass in the lake. 87% of all, of all the weight out there is yellow bass. And that's just not sustainable because these things, they really can't grow. Um, you know, we've got lakes around us. Centerville Reservoir is a perfect example. Same deal. It probably has uh, 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 densities that are very similar to Lake Cornelia. And they, they are, they're such a voracious little predator and, and nothing else can really get ahead of them. And, and why they keep just uh, 
circulate. Basically, all they're doing is circulating nutrients. They're just, you know, a yellow bass dies and two are born in its place, basically, is what tends to happen. And, and we don't really have, like I said, a good, good explanation of why that happens in some cases. But what I can tell you is there's no easy way of, uh, of it, Mother Nature's not going to probably work itself out, I guess, in that particular. Uh, it's, there's no easy way for us to just sit back and say, ah, it'll fix itself. It doesn't. Uh, so we have to get, uh, you know, we, we have to get uh, a little more uh, medieval on it, uh, on those types of issues. And, um, you know, 12-mile lake, 3-mile lake, when the yellow bass populations exploded there, Lake Icaria several years ago, um, you know, dominated by yellow bass and very little else. In those cases, we also had common carp, which were an issue. Uh, so it, it was the right time to go in and eliminate everything. Um, we've done some pretty cool stuff uh, with uh, uh, rope known. So rope known, in case you're unfamiliar, rope known is a naturally occurring, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a natural botanical pesticide that eliminates fish. And uh, it, what it is, is it's a ground up root of a, uh, a tree or a tree uh, of a, a plant that grows in either Africa or South America. There's two different, there's multiple species. <laughs> but we can grind up this root and it, you put it in water and it uh, actually shuts down the, the cells of the fish. And, and how does it work? You know, it's kind of a compl complicated thing. Uh, if you think back to your high school biology days, you, your teacher once said something about Krebs cycle, and maybe your eyes glazed over and you don't remember anything <laughs> after that. But, but that's, that's essentially what it does is it, it shuts down Krebs cycle, electron transport, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, there's, basically what happens is the fish and cells kind of say, oh, we're done, and they shut off. So that's what rotenone does, and it's, it's really kind of interesting. What we've discovered is we can target certain species of fish with really, really low dosages of rotenum and leave most of the game fish like largemouth bass, bluegills, crappies. Crappies are really tough. They, they don't, rotenum doesn't scare them hardly at all. Hmm. Uh, so we can, we can go in with extremely low dosages of rotenum and actually eliminate gizzard chatter yellow bass. And uh, so these are tools that we're developing to try to get ahead of yellow bass so that we don't have to go in and kill everything. Uh, we can go out there and preserve the existing fishery so that the anglers and the people who live around the lake who rely on that lake as part of their, you know, income so that we don't have to go in and kill out everything. You know, we, we don't basically turn that, that lake uh, um, off for several years because when you, when you treat a lake and you kill all the fish, it takes years for recovery. We can go in and we can eliminate these problem yellow bass populations uh, when we know that there's a problem. When, so we can go out there and, and remove these fish. Then, um, you know, that, that's, that's kind of the over, overarching goal of the entire uh, project. And, and Lake Cornelia might be one of those types of systems that would be well suited by that kind of man. So, yeah, it's kind of something I've been working on for the better part of a dozen years now. Um, but uh, it does have potential. So yellow bass, not always a bad thing, but unfortunately, sometimes you do get out of control. So don't introduce them to a new... No, move them around. I will plug this. I, I will make a plug about that. It is illegal for you to stock any fish 
into any water body in the state, public water body in the state of Iowa. So don't do it. Uh, don't move. I don't care if it's a largemouth bass or a walleye, don't do it. Um, because a lot of times there's invasive species here that, that also get moved around and, and, you know, it causes issues. So, so don't move fish around, especially gizzard shad, yellow bass, things like that. But yeah. Um, yeah, that's my plug. For our listeners, I, I'm laughing and just get, but yes, you're right. Be serious, a little bit grandy here. Sorry, but no, you're right. It's like, don't be moving shit around guys. Come on. It, it, it's a, it's it's a domino effect. That's the biggest thing. That's that's and, and it could be bad in a way. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, um, if a fish hasn't been introduced there, it's probably there's probably a valid reason for it because we have a hatchery system that's capable of growing just about everything that we could possibly want in the state. And if we haven't already stocked it in this system, there's a legitimate reason as to why it's not there. Makes sense. Yeah. Just, um, talking with the uh, Tyler Stubbs. The community fisheries. Um, he's actually out in where was he out of Altoona. Or, he lives, uh, he lives, Altoona. Yeah, he lives near yeah. me. Uh, he, uh, we were talking to him about the crappies because so he manages these uh, community fisheries. Then they stock was a catfish, bluegills, and bass. Mm-hmm. But then people are going out there. You know, they're catching twenty eight or not even eight inch crappies. Uh, maybe like six inches. And the DNR is not stocking those fish. They're getting there in there somehow, and they're just taking over those lakes. You know, that's one of the most common questions I get uh, about, oh, by the way, that, you know, and goldfish are another one that tend to get introduced. And that's just because the goldfish got too damn big for your fishing tank. And so people want to take them out and throw them in there. But goldfish (laughs) are, are a bad deal. And, and please don't ever move goldfish to your local public or your piranha or your better Monday or anything like that. But uh, crappie are a, a question I get all the time with farm ponds. You know, people, people want to put crappie in their farm pond. And, and I do a lot of farm pond management seminars. And, and what I tell folks is, you know, you can have some really good crappie uh, populations out there in farm ponds. And then you can have some really bad ones. You know, keep in mind, crappie, Bass, bluegill, they're, they're pretty consistent producers. They, they have, again, here's this word again, recruitment. They have pretty consistent recruitment from one year to the next. They produce fish just about every year. Crappies go in these boom and bust cycles. So they produce this, this biblical uh, uh, a year class of crappies that is so massive that it dominates the entire pond. And remember those fish, they can live to be 10, 12 years old and they may not grow worth a darn. And all of a sudden you're stuck with these crappies that don't grow. Uh, and, and all you can catch ever catch are a five or six inch fish for the next eight years. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's pretty common in a small farm. Plant. It's not to say that that always happens. I've caught some dandy crappies out of farm, plant, but I've also caught some really crappy, crappy crappies <laughs> out of some of these systems. And, and so, same would you know same would go with these these community fishing areas um don't not only is it illegal to to stock fish in these public waters it's a bad idea no because a lot of people i think um the general public i wouldn't say they're just um dumb <laughs> i wouldn't say they're dumb because i i'm one of them <laughs> you know what i mean if if i didn't have the experience i had and the education i had 
and and just studied it a lot you know i would think hey i'd want everything under the sun in my pond but the thing is um these small systems like that are actually much better managed as very simple systems um it's 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 better to manage a, a, a two, three, four, five acre pond as a very simple three, three or four species fishery than it is to manage it as a six or seven because you're much more likely to have those three or four species really turn out to be something impressive. What would you rather have? You know, the ability to go out and catch great bluegill and, and, and great uh, 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 channel catfish and great bass or would you rather go out there and catch mediocre largemouth bass, poor crappies, some a few six-inch bluegills, maybe some yellow perch that are about the size of a pencil, uh, and uh, let's throw in some channel catfish, and oh yeah, let's not forget those three flatheads that are out there, and uh, oh yeah, there's some yellow bass out there too, and then 87,000 bullfish. So, mm. you know, it's just... It, it, it just, uh, simple systems are the best. And, and so that's why we manage those, those small lakes like that as, as very simple. Yeah. Biologically. I, I, I want to touch base with you just a little bit. I know we didn't get a chance to talk about last time. We'll, we'll do it real quick before we wrap up. But, uh, my last one was question, I guess, or I, I was just curious about, um, pond pond management and and then farm ponds and everything because i know in southern iowa in your location a lot of you know I, i'm assuming because uh people ask but a lot of people wondering how do they start you know whether it's uh, um stocking their you know farm pond or how do they get in touch with the iowa dnr or what is the main issue with all of that how, how does that even start and begin i guess so the thing about farm ponds, uh, you know, first of all, let me put a plug in for the DNR's webpage, iowadnr.gov. Go to www.iowadnr.gov. You look up in the upper right-hand corner, you're going to find a little search box. Type in ponds in that search box, and it's going to take you to a full page on our website on pond management. There's all kinds of cool stuff in there. There's uh, information on the kinds of fish you'd be, you should be stocking in your farm pond. Uh, how many fish to stock per acre, what to do if you have too much vegetation, what to do if you don't have enough vegetation, uh, what if your pond is muddy, um, you know, all, do you want to build a pond, what do you need to know about building a pond when you're constructing it, you want to stock your pond, where do I find fish for my pond, well we've got a list of places you can purchase fish on there, so all that stuff is in one spot, kind of one-stop shopping in terms of setting up your pond. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of key because there's about 90,000 farm ponds in the state of Iowa. It's about 120,000 acres of water. Uh, that's a pretty impressive resource. About, I think our last uh, angler survey said somewhere around 15, 16% of all anglers in Iowa actually prefer to fish farm ponds. So it's, it's definitely an important uh, component of our Iowa fisheries. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, really some good resources out there in terms of, of uh, managing those systems. But again, as we already mentioned, keeping them simple, uh, keeping the, the number of species in your pond is, 
is definitely the best way to go. Um, there's some different advice that, you know, we can give you in terms of right, what's most important to you. Do you want to catch big bass or do you want to catch big bluegills? Because you're probably not going to catch big bass and big bluegills in your farm pond. Okay. You're going to probably manage for one or the other. Uh, also, how many, how many bluegills should I harvest? My answer to that is how many can you eat? Because that's essentially the, the, the rule of thumb is you're almost never going to over harvest bluegills uh, from your farm pond. That's, you know, Iowa ponds are so fertile. We can, we can support probably at least 500 pounds per acre uh, of, of, of fish period. And maybe 70, 75% of all that biomass is going to be bluegills. So uh, do you think you could eat 500 pounds of bluegills in a year? Probably not. So I think that, um, you know, you're, you're in pretty good shape. And, and so in terms of the harvest, don't, don't worry about it. Um, you know, you're going to see, you're going to see ups and downs in a pond. That's just the way it goes. There's, there's information out, you know, one of the, the strangest things I've seen pop up in terms of farm pond management in the last 20 years has been the resurgence of Iowa's otter population. Um, believe it or not, uh, river otters cool and as, as neat and cute and seemingly cuddly little creatures that they might be. They are gracious little jackasses when it comes to uh, <laughs> farm ponds. Uh, they will go out there and you get enough of them in your farm pond in the winter and they can kind of clean house. So keep oh. that in mind. If, if you if you are wondering why you don't have any big bluegills and any big bass in your pond, and, and, and I've actually had this happen where I had somebody call me and we're talking for like half an hour and they're telling me all these things. And I'm trying to think, well, that doesn't make sense because this they said this and and then finally, I just clicked. I'm like, you don't happen to have otters in your pond, do you? And and he goes, oh, yeah, we had 10 of them there all winter. Well, all of a sudden, it like clicked. Like, well, yeah, now you just, I mean, they are, they are vindictive little suckers. It's like they kill just for the fun. Really? And um, they will pile fish up on the ice in some cases just so they can say, hey, <laughs> Hey, Ezekiel, did you see all those, all those bluegills I killed today, you know, or whatever the case may be, and, and they just pile them up there, and so they're, they're like, um, they, they will definitely upset the balance of a pond, so yeah, if you've got, if you've got otters out there, you know, there's, I think we even have some information on there as to what to do in case of that, and if they, if we don't have that information, give me a call, and I'll, I'll uh, uh, make, make some suggestions on how you can get around that but anyway that's that's kind of the long and the short of it you know farm ponds are an, an important resource for us uh particularly in southern iowa uh southeast iowa in particular we have a ton of ponds is that pretty similar to i'm uh, just wondering like like in um the neighboring states whether it's kansas missouri nebraska is it pretty similar in regards to pond management is, would you say it's the same <laughs> You know, we all have farm pond management programs. Uh, I'd say that I was, uh, you know, ha has been a, a kind of at the forefront. We did a lot of years of research on how to make the best ponds in Iowa. That was back in the 80s. Uh, so the reason that we have certain fishes that we, uh, we suggest that you stock in your pond is because that's a result of years and years of research. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know what works and, and that's why we make the suggestions that we do and, and not to, not to necessarily include things like crappies and other, other stuff like that. Uh, you know, Missouri's got an abundance of farm ponds too, and they have a really good program. Every state really does, uh, but farm ponds aren't, you know, ubiquitous. They don't, they don't exist everywhere. Uh, when I was in grad school, I actually was involved in writing um, a farm pond management book for South Dakota. Well, South Dakota doesn't have a tremendous number of farm ponds, and, and a lot of them that they do have are these dugouts. Uh, which is a totally different kind of system than, than what we might have here. So, uh, you know, not every state is as lucky as we are. Uh, I mean, for instance, you know, I grew up in Northwest Iowa and there's a lot fewer ponds up there than there are down here. Uh, so it's just, you know, um, they're, uh, they're res- if you are lucky enough to have a farm pond uh, on your property, uh, you know, I'm envious of you for one thing. And then secondly, you know, you've got a resource there, take care of it uh, and uh, uh, it'll treat you right. So yeah, it's, um, I think I think all states, you know, all states around us recognize the importance of farm ponds, but I think Iowa does a, maybe a little bit more with them than some of these. Yeah. And, 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 you know, listeners and followers, if you have a farm pond, you know, don't, don't feel shy to invite us to, to come and, and fish with you guys i'm just i'm just saying <laughs> i'll just throw it out there <laughs> hey let's do a podcast while we're fishing uh so-and-so's pond so <laughs> there, we go. there we go that'd be pretty cool <laughs> i'm just saying it would be really cool spot. got a hot spot on your phone there we go. oh man it's been oh so much fun and so much knowledge that uh you've been really giving us mark um Kit, you got anything else for Mark, man? Before we like, we've been keeping him a little bit too long, but I'm okay with that because I'm I'm getting educated, dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I learned a lot today, so thanks for coming on, Mark. But if our audience wants to know why don't we have slot limits on Rathbin, or there's <laughs> some otters at my pond, or why can't I put crappies or any other questions like that, how could they reach out to you? Just uh, get a hold of me at uh, um, the Rathbun Fish Hatchery. Our phone number is 641-647-2406. Otherwise, feel free to email me at mark.flamming at dnr.iowa.gov. That's M-A-R-K dot F-L-A-M-M-A-N-G at D-N-R dot I-O-W-A dot G-O-V. Awesome. And all right, yeah, we'll 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 link all that stuff for those that don't pick it up on the audio. We definitely will. We'll we'll put it in the show notes. Uh Mark, thank you so much for just joining us and giving us uh all the knowledge. And uh it, as I was saying, I was talking to Jeff and just talking to Tyler. I mean, we love to have you guys on um at least quarterly, or if not, you know, every couple months because you guys give us the lowdown what's going on and uh give us a little heads up what's what what's the iowa dnr doing and then like i said a lot of our listeners love this stuff so um and then we're gonna be there at the the midwest show i mean by, by the time this uh episode you know launches we already probably have been there um but we're gonna be at the uh midwest uh what, what's it called again the midwest fish U.S. Fish and Wildlife Conference. So there's there's fisheries guys there from all over the Midwest, uh, and then there's also um, the wildlife folks there as well. So um, kind of a cross section of uh, fish and wildlife professionals. So it's it's a very cool event. You guys Perfect. Will enjoy it. 
Perfect. So we're going to be there and, you know, we're not going to match with them, obviously. So when you guys hear this, we're going to record an episode out there. We're going to be like, dude, we're going to be two like idiots in the middle of nowhere, not understanding anything, but we're going to learn. We're going to, we're going to get educated. We're going to talk to all these professionals that know way more about fish and biologists. I don't know, man, I'm excited. I just want to get a little, you know, more knowledge in regards to everything. So keep in mind, uh, April's coming and April's our uh, walleye spawning season across the state. That's big. Uh, all people on deck or all, all hands on deck type situation with the uh, IOD and our fisheries bureau. And we'll have some cool stuff to talk about then, too, if you want to talk to any of us at that point, because we're all involved in it. Uh, and uh, it's it's a really big deal for us. So uh, there's, you know, at, at the general public seems to find it as fascinating as we do too so it's, it's there we go april that that is uh on the calendar i'll i'll definitely mark that but um other than that mark thank you so much for just giving us your time and everything uh we'll see you we'll see you in a couple of weeks um at the the conference and everything so we're super excited about that uh but other than that till next time we'll we'll, we'll have you back on see you guys all right see you yep see you everybody yeah.